when witches go riding and black cats are seen, the moon laughs and whispers, "'Tis near Halloween." If you like to learn, but lack enough time, to locate the reason or translate the rhyme, with magical knowledge from ancient tomes on the shelf, I bring Halloween topics to geek thyself. Hello everyone, I'm Heather and I'll be your host for this podcast. Halloween is my favorite holiday and my favorite spooky time of the year. So park your broom at the door and listen for a spell as I brew up some Halloween topics for this week and the rest of October. Hi everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Geek Thyself. I want to start off by making a correction to something I said last week during the mid-roll. I accidentally said that this week was going to be the special Halloween episode where I read a book, but it's actually next week. That episode's going to be airing on October 31st. I somehow got it in my head that last week was this week, and it all got a little confuzzled. But... This week, I'm going to be talking about some of the origins of classic Halloween monsters. Now, I'm not talking necessarily about things that people dress up as, although they dress up like all of the ones I'm going to talk about. But I specifically mean monsters that are commonly seen or thought of when you think of Halloween and Halloween time. Obviously, there's several that are probably coming to mind for you right now. I do want to say, going into this, a lot of these that I'm going to talk about, the information I have for you is a little more broad than I usually do for my episodes. The reason, though, is because a lot of these things I'm going to talk about have a very sort of broad, multicultural origination, and I don't have time in a single episode to go through every single culture's origination story for these creatures. So instead, I'm going to be doing sort of a broad overview, probably mention one or two cultures at least, and then just kind of go from there. Okay, so let's jump right into it. The first one I'm going to start off with is zombies. So zombies as a whole are something that exist as an idea in a lot of different cultural mythologies. There's a lot of different cultures that have myths about creatures coming back from the dead and attacking or coming back from the dead as not human and becoming something else. Vampires in a very real way are an example of this. Technically they don't get qualified as the zombies that we all know, but you know, they are somewhat linked. Zombies in particular, especially the way we know them now, the, you know, I'm chasing after you and I'm going to eat your brains and I'm shuffling along and moving real slow. All of those features, the way we, you know, at least I picture a zombie when I hear the word, comes a lot from pop culture and the way that Romero portrayed them in his Night of the Living Dead movies. That was sort of the first time where a, a big broad scale movie that a lot of people were going to see used zombies and created something like that. It was one of the classics and it's something where people when they think zombie a lot of them picture that. I know I do. 
Now, obviously, there have been a lot of changes. There's been a lot of variations to the genre since then. You know, the, there's the classic debate of are fast zombies true zombies? Or can zombies only be the sh uh, slow shuffling kind? And, you know, we have shows like Walking Dead that expanded on things even further into what it means for them to become zombies. And all, there's been so much done with it. But ultimately the origination is from just multiple different cultures that had stories about people coming back from the dead and coming after others. Now a lot of it also had to do with spirits and ghosts which takes me into my next topic and again like I said I broad I'm doing really broad overview because there's a bunch of them. Some of them are a little more easy for me to define because I have history that I can fall back on to give you more info, but I'm starting off with the ones where I don't have as easy a way to sort of pinhole it for you and just make it a small, smaller group, a smaller focused amount of information. I guess I could, but then I'd be singling out cultures and there's just so many that talk about these that I don't really want to do that and I don't have time to go into them all. So, Moving on to the next classic Halloween monster, ghosts. I cannot think of a single culture that does not have some form of a ghost story. Every culture out there deals with death and had to come up with some sort of explanation for death as well as what happens after. Uh, some of those are more developed than others depending on how modern the culture is some of them we don't know a lot about because the cultures are lost but nonetheless every culture had some variation of death and what happens after some sort of afterlife it varies a lot there's also religions where it varies a lot you know anyone who's christian of course knows that or i mean honestly even most of us that aren't christian have heard the stories so we know about the idea of heaven and hell and purgatory those type of ideas of what happens to your soul and your spirit after you pass on. And of course, there's all sorts of paranormal shows now where people get into, you know, is there a demon in my house? Is my house being haunted? Things like that. But ghosts as a whole, because of how they originate, are fascinating, I think, for a lot of people. Because none of us, I mean, we all have beliefs on what's going to happen to us. Even if you're an atheist, you have some sort of idea of what you believe is going to happen when you die. But there is not a single person that can 100% say what is true. They can definitely say what they believe. I can say that as a Buddhist, I believe when I pass away, my spirit is going to either be reincarnated or if I've achieved nirvana, which I absolutely do not think I have because I'm not super devout and I am not perfect, um, you know, then I'll be reborn into another life and get another try. At least that's the um, sect of Buddhism that my family was raised with. There's variations depending on exactly which type of Buddhism you follow, so I don't want to make that a blanket statement. And then, of course, there's also the fact that spirits in many, many, many cultures, the spirits that come back and haunt you are spirits of those you knew before. 
Now, sometimes they're evil spirits because it was someone who was a horrible person, but quite often those spirits could also be your family members. And we have entire holidays dedicated to things like that. You know, I've, I've mentioned in some of my previous Halloween episodes, Dia de los Muertos, where you honor the spirits of the dead and depending on families' personal beliefs, possibly think that those spirits come back and visit you as well during those days. So it's something that's very culturally relevant to a lot of people. So it's really no surprise that a lot of cultures have these ghost stories and, you know, there's not, a, not everyone out there is a good person is probably the best way to phrase this. And because of that, it's also not surprising that if bad things are happening and the culture happens to be very superstitious or believe strongly that spirits from the past could come back, then it's also going to make sense that they would believe that those spirits could potentially be evil and not just good leading into things like haunted house ghost stories where the evil ghosts are going to come get you or just ghosts in general. So this again is one where it's really hard for me to be sort of definitive on a single origin because literally mm, I don't even know like I can't think of a single culture that doesn't have a ghost story in it. I, I mean there might be one somewhere out there but I can't think of one. I and uh, yeah I mean Pretty much every culture I know of has some sort of ghost stories or spirits coming back and visiting you type of stories. So ghosts have just been around for so long. And of course, Halloween, as I've, again, mentioned in some of my previous Halloween episodes, the origins of Halloween had to do with praying for the souls of the people who'd passed and sort of honoring the spirits of the past in multiple different variations. And so it does make sense that ghosts then would start to play into the whole thing and become sort of a classic Halloween monster when you think of Halloween. Okay, I've got a few more to get through, so I'm sorry if I'm talking too fast. But the next one I want to talk about is the Grim Reaper. So the Grim Reaper or death, depending on how you think of it, there are people out there who think of this as sort of a classic Halloween monster, you know, and they're also sometimes just called reapers things like that depending on what you're going with but the grim reaper as we know it is a very very european take on the imagery now for a lot of us here in the u.s especially the majority of our cultural influence from our history comes from europe because the original settlers were from england and then a lot more came over from europe specifically so there's a heavy european influence in american culture that being said, the Grim Reaper imagery is something that is a very classic European imagery with the black hood and the skull face and the giant scythe that he uses to reap souls with. Super, super, super European imagery. There's a lot of other cultures out there who don't picture death the same way. You know, a lot of, uh, for example, and this is not the death god of Japan in any way, shape, or form, but in Japanese culture, a lot of the demons and monsters look extremely different from a similar creature in Europe just because of the way people pictured them. Another perfect example, and this is not, again, a death situation, but the dragons. European dragons look incredibly different from Asian dragons. And it's because even though the two cultures both created these creatures, 
neither one pictured it quite the same and neither one had artists drawing it the same way. So you end up with the European dragon, which is very classic Dungeons and Dragons dragon, you know, the big, like almost dinosaur-like lizard body with a long tail, a long neck and a big lizard-like face. And then you've got Chinese and Japanese dragons, which are very fluid and more snake-like. And their faces are sort of a cross between a lizard and a lion dog. You know, one of the lion dog statues that you can see in Chinese culture. You know, the there's very, very, very different imagery. You can even see it in uh, Spirited Away. For anyone who has seen the Studio Ghibli movie Spirited Away, when Haku changes into his sort of fuzzy dragon form, he's very clearly an Asian dragon. He's the long snake-like dragon. Sometimes there's wings on those and sometimes there's not, but they can all still fly. And he's got the four legs and, you know, the long sort of mustachey looking whiskers on the front. That's a very classic Japanese and Chinese dragon style, as opposed to any Dungeons and Dragons dragon that you look at the minis and the artwork, those are all a very European style dragon. So that's a perfect example of how two cultures can have completely different imagery for the same thing. But universally, again, as far as I know, I can't think of a culture that doesn't, cultures have some sort of reference to death. They might have a death god, they might have a death spirit, it might be a death demon. You know, there's a whole lot of different potentialities there. But generally speaking, most cultures have some sort of reference to an entity that is linked with death. Now, they're not always negative, you know, to a certain extent, uh, God, the Christian God, could be linked to death because you go see him in heaven after you die. And similarly, they're not always good because, again, using Christian mythos as a perfect example because most people know it, if you're a bad person and you die, you then go to hell and have to have your soul there with the devil. So there's things like that where most cultures and religions and things like that have some sort of reference to death and dying and the Grim Reaper as such is a very classic imagery. It was hard for me to find any definitive origin of the original, original Grim Reaper imagery, the one we so classically think of when you think Grim Reaper. One thing that's important to note, though, and I've basically already said this, but that's only one personification of death. And that's really what the Grim Reaper is, is he's a personification of death. A lot of cultures, a lot of people fear death. And so by making it this entity that we know as the Grim Reaper, it makes it more of a definitive thing. It makes it more concrete for some people's minds and then of course becomes something you can dress up as because the Grim Reaper scary because it's death. There's also so much symbolism with the way he's put together. I mean obviously skulls and skeletons are associated with death for very obvious reasons in a lot of cultures. The black cloak again a lot of cultures specifically European cultures though not all cultures do this but a lot of cultures wear black as a sign of mourning, and there's also a lot of cultures that associate black with death or with evil. And then, of course, the scythe. That's pretty self-explanatory for anyone who knows what a scythe does, but scythes in the old days were used as implements to reap grain and grass, so they would use a scythe to 
reap or cut down wheat and things like that. Essentially killing the plant, but then harvesting souls or harvesting food. So that's where the scythe comes in. And then in a lot of classic portrayals of the Grim Reaper, he's also carrying an hourglass, which again makes sense because everyone has their quote unquote time when they're going to die. So him carrying the hourglass is like saying, has your time run out? Okay, speaking of time running out, I need to go a little faster because I just realized I'm halfway through the episode already and I don't necessarily want to make a 45 minute to an hour episode. I'm assuming you guys like the sound of my voice enough to keep listening since you have been, but I'm still going to try to speed things up a little. So the next broader topic that I'm going to touch on is werewolves. Werewolves are a classic, classic Halloween monster. Everyone knows what you mean when you say werewolf. Everyone might picture it slightly differently, but everyone knows exactly what you mean. So werewolves and also other animals, excuse me, other people that can change into animals or other animals that can change into people, this sort of back and forth transformation mythology exists in a ton of cultures again. Now there are a lot of cultures where it is specifically gods that can change back and forth as opposed to just the average person but then there's also a lot of cultures again I know a lot about Japanese mythos and creatures so it's an easy one for me to touch on but for example Japanese mythology has the kitsune which is the fox that can change into different forms and take on you know a human appearance or take on the appearance of a fox with multiple tails there's things like that which is a perfect example And then, of course, over in Europe, and especially in more Germanic uh, mythology, there was the, and I don't speak German, so I'm probably not saying this right, but I think it's Werwolf, something like that, W-E-R-W-U-L-F, which literally translates to Wolfman. You know, a lot of European countries had some sort of mythology about it, and over time, and European folklore being more cemented, Pop culture picks it up. Of course, they start getting written about in stories. And then we also end up with the movies. Pop culture has played a huge part in the way we now picture some of these classic monsters. The Wolfman movies, the classic horror movies with the Wolfman, are something that gave everyone who saw them, and then of course future generations, an imagery for exactly what this werewolf might look like and exactly what that might entail. No pun intended. And then that branched off into what we know now, you know, with the movies that have come out more recently, things like Underworld with Kate Beckinsale, where, you know, you're dealing with all of these vampires and werewolves, And how every person chooses to portray them is going to be slightly different. But the idea that an animal and human could somehow become cursed or magically have the ability to transform from one to another is, again, something that is very broadly existent around a lot of different cultures. The werewolf as we know it primarily comes from European mythos and especially Germanic, old Germanic mythology about the Virwolf, but there's also a lot of other countries who have variations on it so that's why it was so easy for a lot of different cultures and groups to latch on to the idea of a werewolf 
because their cultures already had something that could transform from a human to an animal and back again. So for them, the concept wasn't completely foreign and it made it very easy for it to spread and become the popular werewolf imagery that we now know. Okay, with that, I'm going to go into my break and I'll be back in a few minutes. All right, well, as you can all hear, Mowgli is meowing at me in the background like usual. So this week, I want to first off thank again Handerson Publishing for letting me use their book, Mr. Boggarty, The Halloween Grump, for my Halloween special next week. And this time I'm right, it is next week, because this episode is going to air on the 24th, and then the following week will be the Halloween episode on the 31st, because that timing was fantastic. I also want to bring up again the Trevor Project and all the amazing work they do, as well as Nerds Giving, which is this year's charity fundraiser. It's actually our first charity fundraiser as a company since Nerdsmith launched this year. And we're going to be sending all proceeds to the Trevor Project. Also, our show on the network Countless Heroes, which is the streaming show that I'm on five days a week. Uh, we also send all of those artist proceeds to the Trevor Project. So it's really a good cause. They do amazing work for LGBTQ plus youth. They've got a bunch of different programs and options. They've got a suicide and crisis hotline for people who need that. They've got chat, again, for the same thing. They've got suicide prevention and crisis intervention chats. They've got Trevor Space, which is a social media group where people from 13 to 25 can go and chat with each other and support each other in that community. There's a lot of wonderful, wonderful things there that are worth checking out. Their website is thetrevorproject.org and I definitely recommend you take a look. And if you want more information on Nerds Giving and how you can participate or how you can help, then please go to nerdsmith.org slash nerds giving. If you go there and decide you want to donate on behalf of my show, I am one of the Nerdsmith directors, so you can donate to the Nerdsmith directors team. There are multiple shows and also shows outside of the network who have started working with us on this, and all of them are grouped together under the Nerds Giving charity fundraiser that we're hosting this year. But you can choose which group you want to donate under depending on who sent you there. So if it's for me, you would want to go to Nerdsmith Directors because I'm one of the directors. As always, please remember to check out the other wonderful shows at nerdsmith.org. And with that, I'm going to get back into this week's topic. Okay, so moving ahead with classic Halloween monsters. I've talked about some of the more broad subject matter, things like werewolves and ghosts and zombies, you know, things that a lot of different cultures have. Now I want to get into some of the ones that have a little more historical evidence for kind of where they originated. I'm going to start with the one that has the broadest origination, and then I'm going to work my way down to the one that's the most specific. So starting off with witches. Everyone I know of, when you think of Halloween, witches pop into your mind. And 
there obviously, you know, there are modern day witches and Wiccans, but also the classic witches, you know, the crones with the, the boils on their faces and the pointy hats and they cackle and, you know, cry up at the moon and ride around on broomsticks and have black cats as familiars, the classic witch imagery. So in terms of the originations of witches, you really have to go way, way, way back in history to when the pagan culture was overtaken by Christianity in a lot of areas, because that really is where the idea originates from. A lot of more pagan cultures dealt with multiple gods, and also a lot of them dealt with not necessarily true magic, you know, not like what you and I think of in D&D when you cast a spell and something explodes, but uh, different things involving herbs and natural remedies and things like that were something that a lot of pagan cultures had. And they often also had a person who was sort of a spiritual leader. So they weren't necessarily a quote-unquote witch the way we picture them now with the black pointy hats and everything, but they had some sort of magic about them and they had some sort of spirituality about them for the tribe, for the pagan culture. And when Christianity came crashing in and basically overtook everything, they didn't want that. They didn't want those people to have that power. And especially back when this was going on, the early, early Christian religion was very heavily in favor of male dominance. So in that situation, that male-dominated religion did not want women having any sort of spiritual ability or having any sort of spiritual importance in terms of taking over a pagan culture. They wanted to downplay or villainize how important those natural remedy healing women were at the time you know, midwives and things like that. So that's a portion of it. But also there's the fact that they wanted their Christian followers just in general, regardless of the gender of the other person, they wanted their Christian followers to see a pagan and think they were evil and consorting with the devil and doing horrible things because they didn't want their Christian followers to then switch back to paganism. They wanted their Christian followers to stay Christian. So they went to a lot of trouble to villainize anything that was pagan and other, anything that wasn't the Christianity. And then if you fast forward several hundred years, you get to the point where we have things like the Salem witch trials, where people, again, were focused on women. And these women that were targeted likely were outsiders in the community so they weren't necessarily the mainstream people they were people who could be identified as quote unquote other and they weren't necessarily even women who worked with natural remedies very much or midwived or anything like that in some cases they were but not all of them but just in general witchcraft kept pervading the idea and it was seen as villainous and evil and anything like that must have been relating back to the devil and it was horrible and of course there were some people who still in you know in pockets here and there were trying to worship their original pagan religions that they had wanted to hold on to but because of christianity having an overall hold on everything they didn't like that and they wanted to push it out and mark that as evil so that really is sort of the origin of the classic witches we know now now the actual image the witch with the classic pointy black hat and the black outfit and riding around on a broomstick. 
that particular image has been around for so long that it's hard again to pinpoint exactly exactly where it started. One area that we do know at least some of it stems from though is old pagan rituals that involved things like broomsticks and jumping in the air and phallic fertility symbols and things like that. There was involvement back and forth in several different sort of shamanic pagan ideas on in terms of fertility rites and whatnot but the thing is too that hallucinogenics were not abnormal to see in shamanic practices dating all the way back to prehistory and in early early Europe it wasn't real hard to get a hold of a hallucinogenic material because they had access to ergot or ergot I'm not entirely sure how you're supposed to say it but it's a fungi that grows on rye and specifically in rye mold and so beers and things made with it or drinks made with it could then sometimes produce a hallucinogenic effect and then you add hallucinogenics plus some sort of pagan ritual where people are jumping around with brooms and you know eventually someone's gonna think of a witch flying around on a broom that's one of the many possibilities of an origin story again it's hard to pinpoint you know exactly exactly but historically speaking that's likely okay i'm gonna try to get through these last couple a little faster since my cat has apparently decided to be crazy in the background and also because it's almost a 30 minute episode already so moving into our next one i'm gonna talk about vampires so vampires again Lots of different cultures have a variation of some sort of vampiric creature. Something that sucks blood or sucks hearts or, you know, something. There's a lot of different cultures that have some sort of creature that will come after your bodily fluids. Well, the classic vampire as we know it started with Bram Stoker's Dracula. Before then, some of the weaknesses of these creatures that we now think of as being traditional didn't even exist. Or if they did, they didn't exist altogether. He actually spent several years doing research on different vampire type mythos in Europe in order to develop the Dracula novel as we know it and the Dracula story which then spawned so many other vampire stories in the future. So vampires as a whole have existed in some capacity for generations and generations in a lot of different cultures but Dracula specifically which has then spawned all of the more recent generations of vampire stories came out in May of 1897. Bram Stoker was an Irish writer and it was originally thought of as more of a adventure book than anything. <sighs> you now all fully understand how many cat meows I edit out or re-record around during my normal episodes. They're in for Halloween month episodes and then I'm going back to cutting them out. But anyway, Dracula, there are some people who think he's based off of Vlad the Impaler and there is a possibility that some of the bits and pieces about Vlad are something that Bram Stoker used. Definitely the name Dracula implies that because Dracula is actually the surname that the descendants of Vlad II were using. Vlad II was known as Dracul, which again I may not be saying 100% correctly, but roughly translated Dracul, which meant the dragon. Drac 
was dragon and ul at the end meant the. So Dracul was the dragon. And then Dracula, an old Ger- again, an old Romanian, meant son of the dragon. So anyone with that surname was then a descendant of Vlad. However, in present day Romanian, interestingly enough, Dracula, or excuse me, Dracul translates to the devil instead of the dragon. So at some point in history, it changed. But a lot of the things that we think of as being very classic vampire traits are things that Bram Stoker actually created. Either he took bits and pieces from the stories he'd read or he just made it up. So things like Dracula having to have soil from Transylvania where he was born and died in order to travel places because he has to sleep on earth from where he came from. Or things like the garlic preventing the vampires from coming near you, crosses, stake through the heart, cut off the head, all of those kind of things. Some of them may have existed in different mythologies, but they didn't all necessarily exist together. And then, of course, the majority of modern vampire mythology and creations have stemmed from Bram Stoker's book. There have been tweaks and twists and changes to exactly how the vampires came to be and things like that. But a lot of the classic, the more classically based vampire stories, I should say, fall into similar patterns as Dracula because that's what a lot of people think of as the classic story. Okay, and finally, the last one, and I'm already over my time, so I'm going to try to be fast, I apologize, is Frankenstein. Specifically, technically, it's Frankenstein's monster, because Frankenstein was the name of the creator, not the monster. But a lot of people make the mistake, so that's why I just said Frankenstein. So Frankenstein's monster was originally created by Mary Shelley, who wrote the book Frankenstein. And it was originally published anonymously in January of, ni- of excuse me, 1818. She was 20 when it was published. And then a few years later, in 1823, is when her name first appeared on the book. The fun thing about this story is that it was actually a story that came about because of a bet. And the fun thing is we actually know a lot about this monster's origin story because in a future publication of the book that came out in 1831, Mary Shelley wrote her own introduction to the book. So she told everyone, this is how I came up with the idea, this is where it came from, that sort of thing. So it started off with her and her lover at the time, future husband, Percy Shelley, visiting their friend Lord Byron at his villa in Lake Geneva, Switzerland. That particular summer, the summer of 1816, gets referred to as the year without a summer because a volcanic eruption at Mount Tambora had just happened in 1815. And so they were basically in sort of a volcanic winter caused by all of the stuff that had gotten up in the atmosphere. So they spent a lot of time inside not doing as much outdoor activities. And one of the things they ended up doing was reading a book on German ghost stories that had just been recently translated into French and it was called Phantasmagoriana. So they were reading all of these ghost stories and eventually one night Lord Byron said hey let's all compete to see who can write the best ghost story and they did that and again because we have her introduction that she wrote herself 
we have little snippets of what happened, including this quote from her where she was talking about people asking her if she'd thought of a story yet. And every morning she had to say, when they asked her, she had to reply. Have you thought of a story? I was asked each morning. And each morning I was forced to reply with a mortifying negative. And then during one evening during that summer, they were talking about the principles of life and she had an idea, perhaps a corpse could be reanimated. And galvanism, which had a lot to do with electricity and electromagnetism, had been sort of a new development in science and people were investigating it. And she noted that galvanism had given token of such things. Then after midnight, when they all went to bed, she couldn't fall asleep. And suddenly she had these sort of waking dreams of these creatures and the idea that became Frankenstein. She said, I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life and stir with an uneasy half vital motion. Frightful must it be for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. So essentially she had a dream about someone creating life, creating a monster, and then she wrote that story. It was heavily influenced also by things that were going on in her life. Her sister Fanny, well half-sister Fanny, committed suicide right around the time that she first started writing the novel. And then also during the time that led up to the novel being finished and actually being published, she lost two children, both with her husband, Percy Shelley. He also had affairs, and there are a lot of different books and things and studies that show that there's links between sort of him and his behavior and then who she created in her stories. But also there's a lot of differences between the original Frankenstein and the one that you and I think of when we think of Frankenstein, the green guy with the bolts in his neck. The original Frankenstein story, the creature never is given a name. He's just Frankenstein's monster, Frankenstein's creature. He isn't given a name at all. There are future editions of the book, like the one where she wrote her introduction, where Mary Shelley referred to the creature as Adam. You know, the first man, that whole creation myth thing. And of course, as I said earlier, a lot of people make the mistake of calling the creature Frankenstein, when in actuality he's Frankenstein's monster, technically. But that's the origination of Frankenstein, the creature that we think of when we think of Halloween, Frankenstein's monster. And the green guy with the bolts sticking out of his neck and the scars across his head, the very Boris Karloff imagery that we all think of when we think of Frankenstein's monster comes from the movie. It was something that they did. Also, important note that's very different from what you think of when you think of the Frankenstein monster is that in her book, Frankenstein was not pieced together from cadavers. Frankenstein's monster was not made from cadavers. He was not made from bits and pieces of dead bodies. Frankenstein, the scientist, actually created him, put pieces together through special chemistry and things like that. He didn't use dead bodies. However, in the movie, the classic movie that people picture of Frankenstein's monster, it was dead body pieces. And that's a classic theme that gets used over and over again in a lot of future iterations of the movie and of the book. 
but her original telling did not involve him using dead body pieces. So that concludes this episode for the origins of some classic Halloween monsters. Again, I apologize that some of them are very broad, but the fact is that quite a few of them, there are multiple cultures who have an origination for the idea. So it's hard for me to be real specific and go into detail because there's just so many different ones. I mean, as it is, I did a broad overview and I'm still hitting almost 40 minutes on this episode. I'm going to hit 40 minutes. Yeah. So I'm going to end this and I will see you guys next week with my Halloween special. Oh, crap. Okay, I was going to be done, and then I realized I forgot to talk about mummies. Uh, So, mummies. Super, super short synopsis. People got really interested in mummies when they discovered them in Egyptian tombs, and that led to mythos about different curses, and those mummy curses often involved the mummy coming back to life and attacking them. Again, goes back to spirits coming back from the dead and causing people harm, and all of that stuff that I've already talked about in this episode. And then, of course, there's also a book that sort of helped launch more of that mythology, also by Bram Stoker, ironically enough, and that was called The Jewel of the Seven Stars. It's one of the first times where there's really talk of, like, reanimating a mummy after mummies became really popular with Egyptology becoming a thing, especially in, like, Britain and Europe in the early 1800s and 1900s. So, sorry, that's super fast, but... I'm so over time, so I will talk to you guys next week. Thank you for joining me for one of our spooktastic episodes for this Halloween season. Please remember to check out all of the other wonderful shows and productions at nerdsmith.org. As always, you can find me at amethyst underscore magic, and that's magic with a CK on Twitter. I'll be back next week with another spooky Halloween topic for the rest of October, and until then, please remember to geek thyself. Crosswords with Will Crossway. Advice and analysis for the musician at the gaming table. Available on nerdsmith.org or wherever you watch your YouTube videos. YouTube, right? Probably YouTube.